We're going through a series on 2 Corinthians, and today we're going to look at uh, chapter 1, verse 12, and go all the way until chapter 2, verse 4. So I'll read it aloud, and then you can follow along on the screen. This is a word of the Lord. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on the way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen, to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you uh, stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you, cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, we, uh, we thank you for your word. And, you know, especially a word like this where uh, maybe um, it doesn't seem immediately re- relevant to us. Uh, we know it's still precious and true. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal the things that you have to say to us today. Uh, you would impress it upon our hearts and you would help us to see uh, the glories of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I hope everybody's doing well. So we are going through a series on 2 Corinthians. And uh, just by way of reminder, the main reason why I wanted to look at this letter is because I just wanted to reflect on this theme of weakness. And uh, this seems like an appropriate time to reflect upon that theme. And this is a very personal letter to Paul uh, in that he's addressing this direct conflict he had with the Corinthian church or some in the Corinthian church regarding the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry. And if you think about letters that are relevant to pastors in particular, people usually think about the pastoral epistles. So books like First and Second Timothy and uh, along with Titus. But Second Corinthians has also been a letter that um, I think pastors turn to because it shows how Paul navigates conflict with a congregation in view of the implications of the cross. And so, for example, uh, I read a sermon by Jonathan Edwards 
that was based on uh, one of our verses that we read today from chapter 1, verse 14. And it was his farewell sermon from the congregation that he had served. And basically, his relationship with the church was strained for a few years because of the way he handled a, a certain situation. Uh, and the situation is like, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but back then it was like a scandal. And what happened was some of the children in his church, they read an improper book. And so as Jonathan Edwards is dealing with this quote unquote scandal, uh, what he did was like he publicly called the names of the children that he wanted to talk to. And it was like a mixture of people who were, uh, you know, supposedly guilty of reading this improper book along with witnesses. Right. And he didn't distinguish the two. And so when he read those names of this, those kids in public, uh, some of the families got mad and like basically his relationship got strained with the congregation. Right? So ridiculous. Right. <laughs> but that's what happened back then. And eventually what it led to is, um, you know, for some other reasons, too, maybe some like theological reasons, too. But basically it led to his dismissal and he basically got fired from his church. And so in his farewell sermon, uh, he even draws from Second Corinthians and he preaches, uh, it was actually a, a great sermon to read, but he preaches from this letter. And I think a lot of times when pastors think about conflict with uh, the congregation, this is probably one of the letters that they turn to. And so if uh, this is relevant to pastors who are thinking about that, I guess the question for us or the, the you know, the average uh, church person is, okay, so like, what, what does it have to do with us? But I think there's actually a lot uh, here that has to do with us in terms of the undergirding theology. So Paul, he's in conflict with this uh, Corinthian church. And, you know, part of the issue is uh, we get this from the context, even from first Corinthians, they're kind of stuck in this worldly mindset of honoring those who are very skilled or very gifted over against those who are weak and those who are poor. And unfortunately for Paul, he belonged to this latter category of uh, seeming to be weak and poor. And that's just one of the reasons why they may have not respected his apostolic ministry. But not only that, uh, by his own admission, uh, Paul wasn't a very good public speaker, uh, at least compared to these other, uh, I don't know, other professional speakers. And there's a story in the book of Acts where Paul is actually preaching and he preaches for a long time. And as a result, there's this young man named Eutychus who falls asleep and then falls out the third story of a window and dies. Uh, I don't know why that story is in the book of Acts, but I always found it to be humorous, but maybe that's an example that Paul wasn't a very dynamic speaker. And so a big part of this letter is Paul, he's making a, a defense basically uh, regarding the authenticity of his apostolic ministry. Now, when I was in seminary, uh, I remember one of my professors would once say, if you're in a position of leadership, inevitably that means your reputation might get damaged once in a while, even if you do act with integrity. But then he would say kind of as a way of encouragement, you know, as a pastor, your job isn't to lift up your name and it's not to care about your reputation, but it is to lift up Jesus's name. And so if that happens, don't make the mistake of making your name central and Jesus's name peripheral. But remember that Jesus name is central and your name is peripheral. And for some reason that that always stuck with me, that that advice. And here Paul's reputation as an apostle is basically being attacked and part of what Paul is doing is defending himself. And so I think it's valid to ask, why is he defending himself? Is it because he cares about his own reputation? And I would suggest that that is not his motive at all. I would suggest that he cares little about his reputation insofar as it has to do with himself 
Rather, he cares about the reputation of his ministry because his apostolic ministry is basically, I think the way he views it, is an extension of Jesus's ministry to the Corinthians insofar as Paul is preaching the true word of Christ and him crucified. And so Paul, he feels to compelled to defend his ministry for the sake of the Corinthians so that they know that the message he preached to them was the true gospel, right? Over against these false apostles who have started to influence members in this congregation. The content of his defense begins in this passage. And uh, I mean, let me be pretty honest here. Uh, this is not a passage I would ever choose to preach on unless you're going through a series. Uh, I'm not sure this is a passage that people would preach on unless like, you know, they're, they're going through a series like Second Corinthians and it kind of comes up because, you know, here, Paul is basically talking about why he changed his travel plans. Uh, because at the end of First Corinthians, Paul promised to visit them twice, right, on the way to going to Macedonia. And then again, when he left Macedonia, but then he changed his plans and he decided not to visit them on the way to Macedonia, because according to the passage, uh, towards the end of the passage, he knew that it would have been a painful visit for them. And so he changed his plans because he didn't want to cause more pain to the Corinthians. And as a result of changing his plans, uh, again, some of the Corinthians use that to question the sincerity of Paul and his ministry. And it's probably hard for us to see the relevance of this passage. It's like, okay, Paul changes plans. What does that mean for me? Um, and it was a, a challenge for me to figure out, like, what kind of message do I want to preach from here? But I do think there's actually two important themes that we can draw out and develop in this text. And uh, I am glad that uh, I was kind of forced to uh, really reflect and meditate upon this text because I think there are some glorious things in here um, uh, in terms of the undergirding theology. So we're just going to look at two themes. We're going to look at boasting and we're going to look at promise. Okay, boasting and promise. Now in verse 12, Paul says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. Paul talks about boasting in, you know, a lot of his letters. You see it in like Romans and Galatians and, you know, different places in his letters. And the most famous verse regarding boasting is probably from Galatians 6, 14, where Paul says, you know, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I was reading the commentary and uh, the, this one commentator counted how many times Paul references boasting and he counted 55 occurrences in all of his letters. And out of those 55 times, 29 times are found in this letter in 2 Corinthians. So that alone tells you that boasting is uh, an emphasis in this letter. Uh, but why does Paul talk so much about boasting? Well, the Corinthians, they had a problem with boasting. It was a culture of honor and shame, and they cared about their status. And status is such an interesting concept because, you know, it's not something we may consciously think about but it's often in the air that we breathe. So status basically is about where do you line up in relation to those who are around you? And if there's anything that can move you up, then you're going to want to emphasize those things because nobody wants to be looked down upon. You want to be up top where people are looking up to you. And so the Corinthians, what they would do is they would boast in things that gave them greater status and greater honor. So what were some of these things? Well, it's probably similar to the kinds of things that people in New York might boast about. They valued things like talent and success, wealth, and celebrity. And with respect to celebrity, you know, if you associate with someone of higher status, then you might feel more important yourself because you know uh, that important person. That's how celebrity works. 
Uh, that's also why it's challenging to be a celebrity. You don't know who your real friends are because people want to be around you to make themselves feel important. And some of the Corinthians are following these false apostles because they think that their uh, teaching and ministries are more respectable based on the Corinthian values. And they're starting to associate with them because uh, it gives them greater status. You know, these are very gifted speakers. They have influence and they certainly have more money than the Apostle Paul. And so uh, the Corinthians, they would boast in these things. Now, in the ancient world, warriors, they would boast before they headed out for battle. And they would say things like, you know, we have the best army or we have the best weapons. And basically that boast was a way to give them a sense of confidence, to give them strength and courage to do battle and to engage in battle. And interestingly, isn't that what a lot of sports teams do before a game? Uh, I don't know if anybody's like a football player. I know there's some like Eagles fans here, so um, we'll, we'll see how they do today. <laughs> but, you know, <clears throat> even sports teams, you watch like before a game, what are, what are they doing? They're doing a boast. They're saying, yeah, we got the best players. We got the best coaches, right? We have the best game plan. We have the most heart. And they're, they're pumping themselves up to gain confidence so that they can go out and perform their best. And so, you know, a boast is not simply uh, just a display of arrogance, but I think it's essentially a way of giving yourself confidence and strength. And in that sense, every person is going to boast in something because we all need confidence and strength. So when Paul talks about boasting, you know, he usually says something to the effect that we shouldn't boast in men or that uh, we have no reason to boast in our works because we're justified by faith. And what he's saying is, we shouldn't put our confidence in these things because in the end, they're too weak. They're too unreliable to put our confidence in them. Rather than empowering us, ultimately what they're going to do is they're going to disempower us. Why? Because they are going to cut us off from the source of our true confidence or our true strength, namely the crucified Messiah. But what Paul says here, it's a little bit strange because uh, he says his boast is the testimony of our conscience. And he's talking about you know, his missionary colleagues. And if you read that in a certain way, it sounds like what Paul is saying is, you know, we're boasting in ourselves. But that's not actually what he's trying to say. You know, in a way, I think what he's doing is he's condescending to the level of the Corinthians and he's using their categories of boasting in order to make a point. And if you read the end of the letter, uh, I can't wait to get to the end of the letter because Paul is like super sarcastic, but it becomes like so clear that this is what Paul is doing because he says things like, look, if you guys want to compare resumes uh, between me and, and these super apostles, which he calls them sarcastically, these false apostles, he says, you know what? Mine is superior. You know, I'll do it. I'll compare resumes and I'll show you how, how much more superior my resume is, but know that as I'm doing this, I'm speaking as a fool. Right. And I give you my resume because really, at the end of the day, it's nothing to boast of. And those of you who want to boast in some of these things, you're a fool. And I'm going to speak as a fool because you're being foolish by boasting in these things. So here, I think he's boasting in things that the Corinthians wouldn't have boasted about because they're so underwhelming. He says, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Now, simplicity and godly sincerity would not really be things to boast about because, again, they're so underwhelming. But that's why Paul is choosing to boast in them, not only to show them that he has conducted himself with integrity, but I think he's also uh, 
starting to show them the implications of the cross, which will uh, which he'll develop throughout the letter. Then he talks about boasting again in verse 14 when he talks about uh, the day of our Lord Jesus. And he says, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And here he's saying he will boast of them because their salvation will be the very evidence that his ministry was built on the right foundation, namely Jesus Christ. They will be his letters of commendation because in spite of external appearances, Paul's ministry was rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so at the same time, uh, the day of the Lord will also reveal to them that Paul was uh, authentic and sincere in his ministry because he proclaimed Jesus Christ, the son of God. And therefore it will be revealed to them that he conducted himself according to that very message. And they will subsequently also boast in him. Um, by the way, this is, that's the verse that Jonathan Edwards preached on uh, when he preached his farewell sermon to his congregation. Now, we're going to talk about boasting much more uh, throughout this letter. So let me move on to the second theme. The second theme has to do with promise. Now, Paul, he told the Corinthians of his travel plans, but he ended up changing those plans because uh, he knew that his visit would cause them pain and he wanted to spare them. And uh, I, I guess the context is important. Why would his visit cause them pain? Well, based on this uh, previous letter that we don't have, so we don't know the contents of this previous letter, but the scholars call it the severe letter. Um, based on the severe letter uh, and 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul probably would have had to confront the Corinthians on some things. And uh, because of that, it probably would have been a painful visit uh, for them. So um, I don't know, maybe he wanted to give them a little bit of space and give them an opportunity to reflect and repent, which seems to have happened based on what he says in chapter seven. Uh, but some are questioning Paul's integrity and sincerity in ministry because he changes travel plans. Now, you know what this reminds me of? Uh, it reminds me of my children. Uh, I don't know if your kids do this, if you have kids, but, you know, my kids always respond to like a change of plans uh, with this wine. And they say like, yeah, but you said, right, you said, and this didn't actually happen. But uh, before, you know, before I guess uh, COVID came to our household, you know, my kids had a very long winter break because uh, their school gave them a very long winter break. And so my plan was to take them to Liberty Science Center because we have a membership. Uh, but this didn't happen. Uh, so we couldn't take them to Liberty Science Center. And uh, I don't know if they remember I told them I would take them to Liberty Science Center, but uh, they, they might say something like this, right? They would say, well, you said you were going to take us to Liberty Science Center. And then I would respond by saying, yeah, but, you know, things have changed. And for your best interest, I, I can't take you to Liberty Science Center. Yeah, but you said, you said. <laughs> and I would say, well, you know, COVID, there's COVID outbreaks. And uh, so it's just no longer a good idea. So we're going to have to change our plans. And, you know, you kind of gave your reason. Uh, and, and I guess in one sense, right, from the perspective of a child, it's like, well, you're not keeping your word. But then in another perspective, from the perspective of a, of a parent, um, it's not that you're not keeping your word, but uh, you have to change plans because of their best interests, right? So on the one hand, you can understand their disappointment. But on the other hand, you can also understand why plans sometimes have to change. I'm trying to do what's best for them. And if they trust me, then they will understand that ultimately I am pursuing their good. Now, there's two ways to... Uh, approach something like that, right? You can, there's a legal way. And then there's, I would say like the love way or the relational way. 
the legal way would be to approach it like a contract where I would be obligated to take them to Liberty Science Center based on the precise terms of the contract, right? So I could say, I'll take you to Liberty Science Center, but uh, there are, we have to list acceptable reasons for why we can't go. Uh, so I'll take you to Liberty Science Center, but if there's a COVID outbreak, then I, I, well, I won't take you. If someone gets sick, I won't take you. If someone breaks our leg, I won't take you. Uh, and then I'm still obligated to take them unless those uh, parameters are not met. Sometimes relationships can feel like that, but that's not how healthy relationships go. Can you imagine that every time you said you were going to do something uh, with your kids, you had to create kind of like a legal contract like that? That would signal uh, something a little bit dysfunctional, I think, in that relationship, because it would say there's no trust in that relationship. And uh, the presumption of that relationship is that it isn't based on love and care, but it's only based on self-interest and obligation. And that's not exactly how Paul sees his relationship to these Corinthians. So in verse 17, Paul says, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? And that's, that's a little bit reminiscent of what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, you know, what he does is he elevates the Old Testament law. Uh, for example, when he talks about the command not to murder, Jesus elevates that and says, you know, even if you're angry with your brother and insult your brother, then you're going to be liable to judgment. And the idea is the heart behind murder is anger. And therefore, if you even have anger, then you're liable to judgment uh, of murder. So when Jesus talks about not swearing falsely, uh, he says this, he says, don't even take an oath, right? Now, why? Why should you not even take an oath? Because you should be truthful all the time. The mere existence of an oath presupposes that the only time you really have to be truthful is when you're taking an oath. But Jesus says, no, right? It's not just when you swear an oath that you have to be truthful, but you should be truthful all the time. And that's what Paul means when he says that his word has not been yes or no. His relationship with them is not one that is constructed on oaths, as if the only times where he has to be truthful with them is when he takes an oath, but rather he is truthful and sincere with them all the time because of the kind of relationship that he has with them. And it's one that is based on love and care. The framework that the Corinthians are casting um, their relationship with him is one that's based on suspicion and self-interest. But uh, the way that Paul is casting his relationship with them is one that's based on love, that seeks the interest of others over self. And if that phrase sounds familiar, it's also something Paul says to the Philippians. That kind of relationship is one that is shaped by the very message he proclaimed to them. It's a relationship of love and care that pursues the good and joy of the other. And of course, not all of our relationships are like that, which is why, you know, in our lives, it's necessary to have contracts. You need those kinds of things with uh, when you have relationships with like maybe strangers or people that you don't necessarily uh, trust. But those relationships don't necessarily depend on truth and love, whereas in the household of God, uh, truth and love are twin pillars and uh, they are because uh, those two things are embodied in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul is trying to convey that the right framework of his relationship to the Corinthian church, it's one that is based on love and care. He would say to them uh, in chapter two, verse four, he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. So he's you know, kind of pouring out his heart saying, I love you. 
I, I love, even though I had to write this severe letter to you, I love you, even though I decided not to visit you because um, I didn't want to cause you pain, right? I love you. I care for you. And it's in this context that Paul says his word to them has not been yes or no. Uh, it's not as though he's saying, you know, I like you, so my word to you is yes. And then the next minute he's saying, well, I don't like you anymore, so my word to you is no. What he's saying is, I always love you and I always care for you, and therefore my word to you is always yes. Our very relationship is defined by yes because of my affection for you. And to bring it back to the parent-child dynamic, even when a parent says no to a child to a certain thing, it is always rooted in a yes for the child because uh, the assumption is the parent loves the child and is seeking their good. Saying no to Liberty Science Center is ultimately saying yes to you because it is for your ultimate good. And that's why Paul uh, brings in uh, the faithfulness of God here. I had to think about this passage and what Paul is saying, but uh, I think this is what he's uh, saying. You know, the gospel that Paul preached to them tells them that this is how God relates to them in Christ. He writes in verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. God says yes in the, in the gospel, in Christ, right? All of his promises find their yes in him. God says, yes, I promise to be your refuge in time of need. Yes, I promise to be with you as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yes, I promise to be your strength and portion forever. Yes, I promise that my mercies will be new every morning. Yes, I promise to be your comfort in affliction. Yes, I promise to give you all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Yes, I promise never to leave you or forsake you. Yes, if you confess your sins, I promise to forgive them. We could go on and on and list so many more promises that we find in scripture that God says yes to because of the precious work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christ, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And given the ultimate yes that God gives through the fulfillment of his promises in Christ, there is never a no with him. So likewise, Paul can say, um, is saying, you know, given my affection, given my heart towards you, as well as the sincerity of my proclamation of Jesus Christ to you, there is never a no to you. It is all yes in Christ. And now that, that gives us great assurance and confidence, does it not? That's why in Galatians 6, Paul says he will boast of nothing but in the cross of Christ. If you're in a place where you feel like God is giving you a lot of no's to your plans and doors are not being opened or doors are being closed, know that where it matters, God has ultimately already given you the, uh, the most important yes in him, right? Through faith, we exist in God's world of the ultimate yes. Our plans change, things that we expect to happen may not happen. And yet God gives us his yes. His promises are fulfilled in Christ. And if that's the case, then like Paul, the implications of that means we do not have to boast in the things of the flesh and we can have a sincere love for others and seek the interests of others over our own. Because in the gospel, we have experienced the ultimate yes in Christ. And I think uh, undergirding, you know, you kind of remove all the, uh, the situ situational stuff 
uh, in this passage, I think ultimately that's what Paul is pointing to. Uh, you know, the gospel is a wonderful word. It's a truthful word. The gospel has changed him and changed the way he views his relationship with them. And because of that, um, there are wonderful promises given to uh, him, given to the Corinthians, and given to you and me. And those promises are yes in Christ. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, your promises. And, you know, I think sometimes uh, when we look at uh, life a little bit too um, specifically, and we kind of get in stuck in our own heads and our own worlds, and we count all the ways in which things are not going our way. Um, uh, we can forget that uh, you have not only given us wonderful promises in scripture, but you have uh, fulfilled them in Christ. And sometimes we forget we live in your world of yes, uh, that you've given us the ultimate yes. Uh, I pray, God, that um, you would help us to see uh, really the, um, the goodness of the work of Christ and the implications of all of what that means. And you know, when we fall into discouragement or when we fall into despair, uh, just in very practical ways, we can lean upon your promises that you would help us to recall them in our minds. And we would remember that these promises um, endure and therefore our confidence, our strength and our boast uh, is in these things. Uh, it's in the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.